Good morning, everybody. Don't worry, we're not doing 21 verses, we're only doing 13. Well, it's a mystery, isn't it? It's a mystery. Where did I put those keys? I'm sure I left them on the table. They've disappeared. It's unfathomable, inexplicable. Is that what you think of when you think of the word mystery? Or do you think maybe of Agatha Christie? You plough through pages and pages and pages of, of uh, hints and clues and red herrings until you get to the final chapter. The mystery is solved. The butler did it. The reader is challenged to solve the mystery by gathering clues. In our passage this morning, Paul uses the word mystery four times. But he doesn't use it in the sense that I used it when I lost my keys. It's more like the, the Agatha Christie example. Something that was once hidden, a truth hidden. There were clues. There were clues as to the answer. But now the truth is revealed. It was hidden, it's now clear. So we're going to find out a bit more about what that mystery was. So please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going through Ephesians, as you know, in our series in Sunday mornings. And we got as far as chapter 3, and we're reading from verses 1 to 13. And it's on page 1175. Page 1175. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. May God bless this portion of his word to us this morning. Please do keep those uh, Bibles open uh, at that page. This is a really dense, really complex passage. sort of uh, section of of Paul's letter this morning, so please do keep them open. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. He's been describing the great spiritual blessings that the church has in Christ. Let me just give you one example of many that have been through the first two chapters. In verse 4 of chapter 2, Paul writes, 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a great privilege. What great blessings these Christians have. Isn't life good? Wow. And now in chapter 3 and verse 1, you'd expect Paul to be building on that great news. He, said, he writes, for this reason, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and you'd expect him to go on and say something like, for this reason I'm praying for you. Or for this reason, be encouraged. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that in verse 1, but he does say that in verse 14. Look with me down at verse 14 for a moment. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being. That's what you'd expect Paul to be writing in verse 1. But he doesn't say that. He breaks off from his train of thought. He goes off on a tangent. He swings off his path before coming back to that original thread in verse 14. You'd expect him in in verse 14 to be saying something like, Now where was I? Ah, yes, for this reason I bow. And so we have an odd, grammatically inconsistent sentence in verses 1 to 3 as Paul swerves off his track. Paul seems to realize that he said something that needs explaining. He says he's a prisoner. And that prisoner, he needs to explain a question that needs answering. You see, Paul's Ephesian readers are looking at his situation. They're thinking about all those truths, all those benefits, all those blessings that Paul set out in chapter 2. We're spiritually rich. We're heirs of God. There is peace in God through Christ. But it certainly doesn't look like it, Paul, does it? You are in chains. You're a prisoner. What's gone wrong? So our passage this morning is an interlude. It's Paul going off and dealing with that question. If we've got fantastic spiritual blessings, why are you suffering so much? And he explains this by explaining a mystery. He talks about the mystery that he is preaching And Paul tells us three things about this mystery. Firstly, he tells us how the mystery was revealed. Secondly, what that mystery was. And thirdly, why that mystery has been revealed. How, what, why. Firstly, then, the how. And we're in verses 2 to 5. In verse 2, we read, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me, by revelation, as I have written briefly. This is Paul's personal testimony. The mystery was made known to him by revelation. And not just to him, in verse 5, it goes on, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, that's previously, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has revealed it to several, to many people. 
The mystery has been revealed by the Holy Spirit. It is a divine revelation. That is the how. Yes, we're to use our brains to understand it, to test it. Perceive my insight, Paul tells us. But it didn't just come from somebody thinking about it. It wasn't a a light bulb moment. It wasn't a, 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 a eureka moment by an Archimedes or an Einstein. It was revealed by God. It needed God's Holy Spirit to reveal it. Yes, there were hints of this in the Old Testament. Here are just two as an example. Uh, You'll be very familiar with the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families shall be blessed through the Abrahamic, that Jewish line. And much later, another hint, Zechariah prophesies, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, For behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. There were clues, but God always intended that his chosen people would include both Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. It was hidden until it was revealed. That's the how. Secondly, the what. What is this revealed mystery? This is in verses 6 and 7. And Paul answers this very straightforwardly. He answers that question by saying, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. I don't think we can fully appreciate the shock that that would have been. We who are Christians today know that Jews and non-Jews alike need Jesus for salvation. It doesn't matter what your background is. But it wasn't always like that. Jews knew themselves to be different, specially chosen as the people of God. God who rescued them from famine. God who rescued them out of Egypt. God who led them through the wilderness to their promised land. If you were not a Jew, you were an outsider. You could not be a member of God's people. This was so strongly felt in uh, Paul's day. It was the very reason why Paul was in prison. Paul was preaching the gospel that everyone, no matter who, could come to God through Jesus And so that news incensed the leadership. They imprisoned him. So Jews and Gentiles are joined together in one church. And here in verse 6, Paul reinforces this three times. They're fellow heirs, these Gentiles. There's no difference. He says they're members of the same body, working together, needing each other. He says they're partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's no difference. Gentiles aren't second-class Christians. They all are, we all are, equally heirs, members of the body, sharing in the same promise. So what's the implication for us? Well, it's surely that God does not care about background, Jew or Gentile. Nobody is excluded from God's salvation just because he or she is not like us or not even like our impression of what a Christian should look like. 
So how dare we exclude anybody from the family of God because they are different from us, a different race, a different social class, or wear different styles of clothes. Indeed, quite the opposite. The church is a wonderful mix of cultures and colours and classes and tastes. And we're a small picture of that here in Holy Trinity. Lunchtime today, we're going to share a lunch together, a smorgasbord of different types of food, illustrating the richness of our different cultures. We all know this in our mind, don't we? But we can behave differently in our actions. We can exclude others without meaning to. We all have unconscious, unconscious biases, which we exhibit, well, unconsciously. We don't sit next to someone who is different. We prefer to chat with our friends who are like us, rather than go out of our way to be genuinely friends with those who are different from us. We may not deliberately shun the stranger, but we don't exactly welcome them either. I wonder about the experience of those first Gentile Christians in Ephesus. How would they have felt when there was nobody like her or him in that church? Would they have felt loved? And I wonder when our first Libyan or our first Saudi comes through the door here, how will they feel? Or the first Kurdish refugee or the first cross-dresser, how will they feel as they come in through those church doors. You know that feeling when you're invited to a party when you don't know anybody? Now, I know some of you are super confident extroverts and you can't wait to dive into that Prosecco and the canapes and easy conversation with total strangers. But I, for one, find it really hard, and I'm sure others do too. You feel like you shouldn't be there. You feel like you don't know anybody. You feel like a lemon. And I think if you walk into church for the first time, it can feel a bit like that. And as a church, we need to make it really easy, as easy as possible, for people to walk in. And I say thank you to those welcomers at the door who welcome people in. It's such an important ministry. But we do need to take care how we go about welcoming. I once went to a church in Tokyo, a large city centre church. I crept in, I sat at the back, and I listened. Fortunately, some of it was in English, most of it was in Japanese, but some of it was in English, and I could pick up what was going on. And all was going really well until the notices. You know what happened, don't you? Welcome. Welcome to those who are visitors. Those of you who are visitors, please stand up and shout out your name. Ugh. As hundreds of people literally craned their neck and looked round to see where the Brit was sitting. It was absolutely natural in their culture, in their way of doing things. But boy, did it make me feel awkward. We have to be careful in how we go about welcoming people. So a word to those of us who are members of the church family here. Martin Luther King uh, while he was welcoming changes in the law to prevent uh, racially aggravated violence, famously said 
the law cannot make a man love me. I don't want to agree that we cannot love simply by gritting our teeth and trying to force ourselves so to do. We can only love others by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, helping us to see that God first loved us, that God first loved us. And we need to allow God's grace to work in our lives, helping us to reflect God's love for others. After the service, a simple thing. In fact, I would like to say that our service doesn't end when the formal bit ends. Our service continues as we meet together in fellowship, encouraging one another and welcoming one another. It's a really important part of our service as our meeting. Why don't you say hello to somebody that you don't know? Say it gently in a welcoming, loving way. But do say hello. And then when you see them again next week, say hello again. And use their name because you'll have learned it the first week. A challenge to you. Remember a name. And a word to those of you who are not yet members of the church family. Know this, God loves you. We're sorry if we Christians fail to reflect God's love. We're sorry, but don't be put off by us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity, your background, your education, your class. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you have done. God loves you and wants you to join his family. How do you do that? By putting your trust in the Lord Jesus as the one who, unlike us, lived a perfect life. He died in our place, taking the punishment for our wrongdoing so that we can live without that burden. If you want to find out more about that, if you want to understand more about becoming a Christian, then do speak to David or to me after the service. So how was the mystery revealed? By God himself. What was the mystery? That the family of God comprises all of us who are in Christ equally in our rich diversity. Jew and Gentile, and by extension Greek or Turk or Nigerian or Chinese or Zimbabwean, even Australian. Everybody. Thirdly, the why. Why has this mystery been revealed? Well, in verses 8 to 12, we find out there are twin objectives here of the mystery being made known. Firstly, to the world, and we see this in verse 9, Paul is preaching to the Gentiles, he says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Secondly, and most amazingly, in verse 10, so that, so that, this is the purpose, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul has a really high view of the church. He doesn't see a struggling group of a few exhausted Christians meeting in a dilapidated building. He sees the church as God's display window to the world. Diverse people in a single community showing the world how to live, how to live in God's love and bringing light to everyone. God's plan for mankind, seen through the shop window of the church. And the church is also God's display window to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We might say to them, don't look now, we're not ready. We're still a pathetic, divided, sinful group. Please wait a bit until we get better. 
But the rulers and authorities are seeing now how the wisdom of God is being worked out on earth. You see, the church is central to God's plan for for reconciliation of all creation to himself. We are God's display window. Just look around. Look around. This is how God chooses to bring his kingdom in with us. What an amazing truth and an awesome responsibility. So finally, we come to verse 13. And it brings, if you like, the closing brackets around this interlude that Paul has uh, gone off on. Paul started off by referring to himself as a prisoner for Christ, triggering that question for the Ephesians, how, they would, how he would square that with the wonderful benefits we have in Christ. And Paul summarizes in verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, for which is your glory. I'm in prison, but that's not a failure. I am in chains, but those chains do not invalidate my ministry. They're for your benefit. I'm imprisoned because I teach that both Jews and Gentiles share this great news that all come to God through Christ. I'm suffering gladly because this is for your benefit. So don't lose heart. And for us Christians, it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to be discouraged. We look around at the church today. We look around as the bad influences of the world seep in to the church life. We look at our divisions. We see the falling away from truth. We see pride and indifference and lovelessness. And we wonder how we can possibly be a shop window for the kingdom of God in the world, let alone to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. But Paul would say, don't give up on the church. Be encouraged. God is building his church spectacularly in Korea, rapidly throughout Africa, miraculously in China, but also here in London. People are finding Christ. The Holy Spirit is quietly going about his business, drawing people in, and Jesus is saving. And so now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.